look, it's free. This is not a big investment. And I tell everybody this, try it. It may work. And I'm constantly amazed, talking to members of my family. And of course, when I'm having problems, they'll say, you know, Dad, you should write about this. And it just the ways to help out of me. But they're right. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Building on decades of professional experience, this podcast tackles neurobiology, modern attachment, and more in an honest way that's helpful in healing humans. Your session begins now with Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Ah, February, the month of love. But we should remember, as Miley Cyrus tells us, you can give yourself love better than anyone. So in that spirit of self-love and self-care, we turn to thank our luxurious sponsor, OneSkin. OneSkin feels so delicious when I smooth it over my face and around my eyes, but it counts as self-care because it's not just superficial moisturizer. You get a scientifically proven treatment that improves the appearance and health of your skin at the cellular level. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OSO1 peptide. It's the first ingredient scientifically proven to reduce the buildup of senescent cells, otherwise known as zombie cells that contribute to skin aging. Fewer zombie cells mean healthier, younger looking skin with fewer lines, fewer wrinkles, and reduced age spots. One of the things I love is the environmental friendly packaging. When you run out, which you will because you will use it all the time if you are like us, you just pull out and replace this collapsible middle section and keep the nice looking hard shell that it sits in, which is smart and it feels good as a consumer. No matter your gender, OneSkin works with cutting-edge longevity science that doesn't just improve how we look, but it optimizes our skin biology so that it is more resilient to the aging process. That's why OneSkin is more than skincare. It's about skin longevity, targeting the root causes of aging to help you look and feel your best at every age. Get started today with 15% off using code TU at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code TU. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Please support the show and let them know that we sent you Therapist Uncensored. It's time to expect more from your skincare routine. Invest in the health of your skin with OneSkin. All right, Dr. Pennerbaker, thank you so much for joining us. Ann and I are particularly interested in, you know, always bringing to our audience things that actually work and not just theory. And in particular, we love this because it doesn't require a therapist and it doesn't require any money. So we also really like promoting things that make the world a better place and that are accessible to everyone. And we ran across this protocol that you have and series of studies that have incredible health outcomes and mental health outcomes. So tell us all about it. Of course. I'm a social psychologist and I'm not a clinical psychologist. So I am not trained to help people. <laughs> you just stumbled into that. <laughs> I, no, I did. I stumbled into it. You know, I started graduate school because I was interested in the mind-body problem, and I was interested in how we come to feel what we do, what makes us anxious, what makes us sick, and things like that. And once I started my first job, I'd been doing a lot of work on the psychology of physical symptoms, when people feel symptoms and how and why. And I wanted to put together a big questionnaire to identify what kind of people report symptoms. And there really wasn't much done on this back then. And so I 
sat around with my students. I said, let's come up with a questionnaire and try to just identify what kind of people, what kind of behaviors might be related to reporting to physical symptoms. So, but I said, on this questionnaire, who cares about theory? Who cares about any major ideas? Let's just throw out anything that we're interested in. You know, so somebody said, I want to ask some questions about what people eat. Another person wanted to focus on people's relationship with their mothers and fathers, all these kinds of things. And somebody said, how about this? Prior to the age of 17, did you ever have a traumatic sexual experience? Yes or no? Here are. I thought that was a good one. So we put all these questions together, and it ended up being about a 12-page questionnaire that we gave to several hundred college students. But what we found was that one sexual trauma question was related to every health item that we had on the whole questionnaire. And what made this so interesting to me was, what was it about a traumatic sexual experience that was associated with health problems? So I ended up doing other studies, and I started to notice with doing studies with with adult samples that, first of all, this is a really robust effect. But the real problem was it wasn't a traumatic sexual experience per se. It was having any kind of trauma was bad for you, and we've known that forever. But having a bad, any kind of upheaval that you keep secret increased its toxicity. In other words, big secrets are really unhealthy. And as you get into this, you as therapists, you know very well what this problem is. If you are keeping a big secret, you have to be on guard all the time. What if somebody finds out? What if I spill the beads? How is this person thinking about how I am right now? Do they know what's going on? In other words, people who are keeping a big secret, they don't sleep as well. They are on guard more, so their autonomic nervous system is more active. Their immune system is probably suppressed. And all of these factors together make life miserable. And therapists generally deal with people who, frankly, are harboring really big secrets. I'm terribly anxious. I worry about this all the time, but I can't tell anybody. Sometimes they don't even know they're holding it as a secret, right? Like these events happen and it's sort of a secret in their body, but they're not even consciously aware that they're holding it as a secret. They're just not talking about it. It's like gone. It's past. I describe it like holding a ball in a pool underwater kind of behind you that you don't really know you're doing it, but it is taking some passive effort to hold it down. So rather than necessarily consciously thinking about it, it's just something that we're just naturally doing. And maybe, and is it true that it's, is it secrets specifically or just unprocessed trauma? You know, I don't make a big distinction that I think it's, a, it, I think it's both. So around this time, I started talking to my therapist friends about their views of therapy and why it worked. And the kind of conversation you have is, no, really. Why does it work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me about CBT. Right. Tell me about <laughs> who cares? Because all therapies work. Why does it really work? And then I started wondering if holding secrets is so bad, what if we brought people in the laboratory and had them talk to somebody about the secret? But as a researcher, that's too complicated because then you're having to deal with how the other person reacts. So it occurred to me, well, what about just having them come in and write about a secret? And then I came up with this issue of, well, a secret kind of ambiguous. How about I just have people write about any kind of major upheaval in their lives, ideally ones they haven't talked much about with others. 
And that was how I started. And I did a lot of thinking about this and tried to figure out, well, should I just have them come in and write once or should I have them write multiple times? Anyway, I uh, decided to do an experiment where I'd have some of the people, these were all students in our first studies, I asked them to write about a traumatic experience, and then I had another group at the same time write about superficial topics. So there was kind of an experimental group and a control group. And I decided to have people write for four times, 15 minutes a time. Now, the logic of this, there was no theory. It was just a fluke. The issue was I needed to have run about 50 people and I could get a group of rooms only from about 5 p.m. till 10 at night. And I had to do it in four days because I could do it on Monday through Thursday night. That was why I had people write four times. So I'd line them all up so people would be scheduled every five or 10 minutes. They'd come in, I'd talk to them first, and then give them the writing instructions depending on what condition they were. Someone would take them to a small room where they'd be by themselves, where they could write for 15 minutes. At the end of 15 minutes, yet another person would knock on the door and say, okay, your time is up. Fill out this questionnaire and then staple the questionnaire to your writing. Put it in this big box as you leave and we'll see you tomorrow. So that first study, there was no theory. There was no anything except this general idea that maybe this could be beneficial. I also got permission for all these students to have the student health center record all their visits to the student health center by month from before the experiment to three months after the experiment by, you know, was it uh, uh, illness or was it an injury or was it a checkup or whatever? So I could get this information. When people came into the lab, they'd sit down and I'd say, okay, so they had signed up for an experiment writing about life experience which was, you know, something vague. They sat down and said, okay, I can't tell you exactly what this study is about, but what I'd like to have you do is to write for four nights, 15 minutes a night, you'll be doing it here. And uh, different people will be asked to write about different topics. Some topics may be very personal, others maybe not. You can quit any time and get full credit and the usual consent issues. Are you willing to participate? They say yes, and they all did. Then by a flip of the coin, they were put in either the experimental condition where they would write about emotional upheavals for four days or a superficial topic for four days. If they're in the trauma condition, the very first experiment, I said, okay, so for the next four days, what I would like to have you write about is the most traumatic experience of your entire life. When you go into that room, I want you to start writing about this. And the only rule I have is to write the entire time. If you run out of things to write about, just repeat what you've already written. I want you to really let go and explore your deepest thoughts and feelings about this. You might tie this into other issues in your in your life, maybe how it's related to your family, to other upsetting experiences, to relationships you're in or have been in. It could be related to school, who you want to be in the future, who you have been in the past, or who you are now. You can write about the same traumatic experience every day, or you can write about it differently each day. That's entirely up to you. And many of us have not had major traumas, but all of us have had major stressors or conflicts, and you can write about those as well. But whatever you choose to write about, I want you to really 
let go and to immerse yourself in this. And that was basically the instruction. These, by and large, were college students. They were anywhere from you know 18 to 22 years old. And half the students wrote about traumas that all of us would agree were major upheaval. I was really impressed. This was an upper middle class university, and I was impressed by the degree of hardship that the, a lot of these kids had had. And the other issue was the degree to which they automat, almost automatically started writing about incredibly personal, powerful experiences. I was also fascinated about how they would walk out of the lab every night. I could see them and we would talk to them briefly. You know, some had been crying in the room. Some just were, you could tell, were really exhausted, especially the first night. And by the end of the experiment, especially the first day, they felt worse than they did before they went in. They felt somewhat sad, like going to a sad movie. Uh, nobody flipped out. Nobody you know, required us to take them to a psychologist or psychiatrist. But the one thing about it was it was a powerful experience. And what we discovered compared to people who were asked to write about these superficial topics, and the superficial topic would be describe the root, your, your dormitory room. Describe an event you went to in the last 24 hours. Make it very objective. We're just interested in the facts. We tracked uh, the student health records, and the people who wrote about these traumatic experiences ended up going to the student health center about half the rate as people in the control conditions and also half the rate of about people who were not in the experiment. In other words, writing about these deeply upsetting experiences in an interesting way seemed to protect their health. But there were other things that were fascinating about this. Overwhelmingly, they said this was a really powerful, very beneficial experiment. To give you an example, ask any researcher about bringing people to the lab for four days to do an experiment and ask what percentage of the people don't finish the study. It'll be 50%. We got everybody. Everybody came and they did the whole thing. Another thing that was interesting was over the next year or two, I'd be walking on campus, and sometimes a student would cut them up to me, and they say, I know you don't remember me, but I was in your study last year, and that study changed my life. Thank you for letting me be in your study. I can tell you that had never happened to me. And it just was a marker of what an experience this was. You really knew you had tapped into something incredibly deep, and that was the start for you, wasn't it, of like a path that says, I got to keep going forward. That's right. And- the other thing I knew was I, the second time we did the study, you do the study, then you wait several months to go to the student health center to get the data. And I remember coming back from the student health center the second time. You know, the first time, I was hopeful it would come out, and it did come out. That was a shocker. And then the second study, you know, everything was right on this. And I remember going through, walking back from the student health center just looking at the, the various conditions and what had happened. And I remember getting into my office or running into a friend, and I said, this worked. And I knew that this would change the course of my, my life, my career, which, which it did. Well, and there's been many studies since that have just continued to validate. That's right. In fact, there have been now over 2,000 expressive writing studies since that first one, which was published in 1986. 
and they, you know, we know that this writing can bring about changes in not just colds and flus and, and minor illnesses, but it's been associated with changes in how long people are in, in the hospital after surgery. We know that it's related to issues like depression and PTSD, arthritis, asthma. Fibromyalgia, sleep. Oh, yes, sleep, which, by the way, I think is one of the most diagnostic issues. Uh, and we'll come back to this in a second because you're going to ask, why does it work? <laughs> and the other issue is it was associated with people who had been laid off from their jobs. They got jobs more quickly if they wrote about they're getting laid off. It's been associated with uh, fertility treatment. It's been associated with, my God, just it's breathtaking, the kinds of studies that have been done. And indeed, if anybody out there listening to this wants to know more information, go to Google Scholar. Google Scholar is one of my favorite places because it's, it's a essentially appendix of all the scientific literature. Enter search terms, expressive writing, and fill in the blank. What are you interested in? Probably somebody has done something on it. The first studies I did were 1986 and then I was very active in this for about 10 years and then I started to move off into other areas that initially were related but I haven't been involved in research on expressive writing in much detail in the last few in the last several years I can't keep up with the literature in fact this morning I did a quick search on expressive writing studies in the last year and there were at least one or 200 studies. I mean, it's breathtaking. What was really fascinating is you started and, and it followed even doing blood draw studies. So it wasn't just outcome measures that we were looking at. You looked at immunology studies, the, the outcomes pre, post, and out in significant time periods after this. Could you talk about that? The second study I did, I worked with Jan Kiko Glazer and Ron Glazer. And back in the 80s, they were just starting in this new world of psychoneuroimmunology. And we teamed up, and they were at Ohio State. I was in Dallas at SMU. And that study, we drew blood before the experiment, after the last day of writing, and then again six weeks later. And the blood would be sent up to Columbus, Ohio, where they would assay the blood. What we found was that people in the experimental condition showed enhancement in immune function compared to controls. And after that, I was involved in some other immune studies looking at immunity response, but there have probably been a, a dozen immune studies, and there have been really cool studies on wound healing, where you do experimental wounds on people. There's all sorts of just fascinating things. It's also associated with people making better grades in college or in high school, that people do better on standardized exams like, like the MCAT or uh, SATs if they do writing beforehand. And I think part of this is expressive writing in a sense stills the mind. It, it makes us where we stop ruminating about the upheavals that we've dealt with. I mean, it sounds too good to be true, really. Like it's the elixir that we all look for of that it fixes everything and it does everything and it's free and short but let's temper everybody's expectation. Yes, it's free. Yes, anybody can do it. Doesn't always work. 
I do expressive writing occasionally, you know, once or twice a year. Usually it really helps. Sometimes it doesn't. You know, there you go. I think sometimes there are all sorts of reasons why it doesn't work as well as why it does work. But don't expect this to automatically change your life. It is something that can help put things in perspective. But sometimes it might just be too big or it might be too close. So my recommendation is to try it out, see if it works for you. And if it doesn't, do something else. Go to a therapist, go jogging, do some yoga. You know, the reality is there is no one true way to fix anything. I know that Andrew Huberman just had a podcast and had spelled out this protocol, and it was a very specific but we've heard since then that you would say it differently. And I want to give you the opportunity that everyone's going to be interested in, okay, how do I do this? What are the prompts? What are your suggestions? One of the big problems is expressive writing. With all these studies, we now know it's a lot more complicated than when I started. You know, at the beginning, I thought I had found truth. Write about a trauma for four days. But then I quickly discovered you don't have to write about a trauma. You can write about anything that's bothering you. And in fact, that's the way I write. You know, if I am lying in bed in the middle of the night and I'm obsessing about something that's maybe happened at school or something that happened with, between my wife and me or with our kids or, you know, why is my ankle hurting and I'm obsessing about it and so forth, I'll get up and I'll just start writing. What's going on here? Why am I thinking this? I don't write four times. I'm not writing about a trauma. But what I'm doing is... I'm putting an experience into words that has bugged me. And I think that's the essence of this. It might be helpful for me just to very briefly go over what we know in terms of why it works, and then we can come back to some of the more practical sides of it. Across all of these studies, the first thing I learned years ago is if you're looking for a single explanation for this, you will never find it because there's too many things going on. And I think of this as kind of a cascade of factors. The first factor is merely labeling something, merely describing something. I had this experience. You know, very often people don't even get to that. They start to move into this world of, I'm not going to talk about it because if I talk about it, it'll just make me think about it, which is a frankly kind of a goofy way of thinking. The important issue, though, is labeling it. The second is to start to describe it. Start to put it in a, a language-based format. You could write. You could talk to someone. You could talk to a tree. It doesn't matter. And your writing could be typed, or it could be handwritten, or I've done studies where I have people write using finger writing and putting it in the air. And in all those cases, it works. It's the translation of what's inside your head into words. So that's really important. That process also is interesting because when you are describing something, first of all, you're having to do a sentence. When you start a sentence, you're committed to finish that sentence. Unlike if you're just walking down the street thinking about something. You think about this upsetting experience and then you go, oh, I should have said this. I wonder what I'll have for dinner. But here, 
you are committed to finishing that sentence, and then you're kind of committed to the next sentence and so forth. And what you're able to do is start to put together your finding meaning. What happened? Why did this happen? What role did I play? How am I going to deal with this? All of these are issues that you can do with writing. And the other thing I find over and over again is when people write about some experience they haven't talked about much with others, they start to realize this experience is much bigger than I ever thought. Yes, this happens. Yeah, it's true. I haven't been sleeping because of this and I haven't been eating, so I've been losing weight and I've been so nervous I haven't been seeing any of my friends and oh my God, this is a much bigger thing than I ever imagined. And wow, this reminds me a lot of the last time something like this happened several years ago and I did the same thing. I mean, the same. In other words, it's helping people to put things together. The next issue is this idea of cleaning the mind, clearing the mind. I think Scientologists call it going clear, but I just call it clearing the mind. The idea is that if we have an upsetting experience and we're ruminating about it, what happens is we're thinking about this event pretty much all the time. And if you can stop that rumination, all of a sudden you can process more information. We call this in the clinical world executive functioning or sometimes referred to as working memory. And there are all sorts of ways to test this working memory. But what you find is people who are under stress, they have much less working memory. They just are incapable of remembering and more forgetful and so forth. So there have been some very fine studies where people are asked to come in, like beginning college students, to write about their deepest thoughts and feelings about coming to college or a control topic. And what you find is after this, they have greater working memory. And they have greater working memory for several weeks afterwards. And they also do better in school. They also sleep better. And I think all of these are markers of what this expressive writing is doing. There's one other thing that's really important. We know if you're going to stand back and look at what really, really works in psychology, there's only two or three things that you can really take to the bank. One of them is putting upsetting experiences into words. And, you know, the psychoanalysts, the CBT people, the your three-letter therapies, they all involve language. Another thing that you can take to the bank is some kind of relaxation. There's all sorts of types of relaxation, but I think being able to do that is, is very important. And the last, which is perhaps one of the most powerful, is establishment of a social network, a friendship network. And one of the questions is, I've been interested in, oh, and by the way, I think exercise, I'd throw that in as another one. But this social network, we know that social support is one of the best predictors of improved physical and mental health. One of the things I was curious about was, if do people do expressive writing, did, are their social behaviors changed afterwards? And so what we did was to develop this device where people would wear a, what we call an E or the electronically activated recorder. And it was a recorder that came on for 30 seconds and we'd go off for 12 minutes. They would do this off and on for two days. And one of my former students, Matthias Mel, who's at the University of Arizona, has really taken this to the next level in terms of ways of doing it. What we would do is we'd have people do the ear for two days 
And then a week later, they do the expressive writing, and then we'd have to wear the ear again a month later. And what we found was that people who did this expressive writing compared to controls, later on, they talked more, they laughed more, they used more positive emotion words, they were more socially integrated. Now, we gave them questionnaires and asked, has your social life changed and so forth? The questionnaires didn't show anything. But these objective markers of being socially integrated did. So you can see expressive writing is changing the way we're thinking. It's changing the way we're feeling. It's changing the way we're sleeping. It's changing the way we're connecting with others. So it's all of these features that can make a difference. Well, yeah, it still sounds like an elixir in this wonderful way. I, you know, I keep translating what you're saying into kind of therapy language, you know, the way that we think of it. And what's so nice is it it does dovetail so much with the neuroscience and name it to tame it and creating a coherent narrative is part of secure attachment. So that tracks just incredibly. I do wonder, I know that you've done all the different research related to even finger writing, which is so interesting, but you're saying thinking about it doesn't work. But what about talking? Honestly, I think talking can be the best. But this is a high-risk game. It's like poker. You can tell another person about this horrible thing that happened to you. And we've all had this experience. You start to do this and you look, look at the other person and you see their facial expression and you can see the horror in their eyes. And you realize, whew, this was a bad idea. And then you change topics. But there's also people often keep the secrets because they know if they say it, it's going to mess the family dynamics up. And sometimes they are completely right. Or they that people will think less of them. Yep, that's a good possibility as well. So if you can be certain that the other person will be, you know, show unconditional acceptance of you, then I think talking, that would be my first choice. But... If you want to be safer, try writing first and then talk. Yeah, and I love your idea that you can, it doesn't matter if anybody reads it, that you can throw it away, that you even advise throwing it away. I think that is great. I was also thinking that part of the writing process is if you, especially at the beginning of something that you've really been holding back, I think there's this element of social judgment. Even if you trust the friend, you have this self-analysis of what they're going to, you have this, this meta view of what are they thinking about what I'm saying? So it's harder to drop as deeply into your own experience of when you're just writing purely and you don't have that thought, I'm going to tear it up at the end or nobody that I know is going to read it. There's this freedom for authenticity and openness to connect without the meta view of what are people thinking? And I think especially today, it's harder and harder for people not to think about what are people thinking about what I'm thinking with social media, et cetera. Everything's kind of a outside in view of self and writing is such a direct experience to your internal process. I think that's a, re a really good way of putting it. I also have noticed over the years that people would come in in our studies and they'll write about something that they've not talked to anybody about. And then when we contact them later, We'll ask, how many people have you told about this experience? And a high percentage of people have now talked to other people about this experience. You know, part of it, they realized it's not as horrific as they thought, or that they now have a different perspective on it than when this may have happened, you know, several months or years before. And you make a distinction between journaling 
just what we typically think of as journaling. And I'm also just thinking about like clients, or, you know, just talking versus this kind of talking or this kind of writing. Can you say a little bit about that? Well, I do make a big distinction between, you know, keeping a diary or journaling. But to me, journaling means doing this every day for the rest of your life, which I can't imagine. That's the, that sounds horrible. I would never do it. I know some people do it. Great. It's beautiful. But for me, no. My approach to this is, look, this is like a Band-Aid or penicillin or, or something like that. Try it for three or four days. And if at the end of three or four days it doesn't work, do something else. And if you're feeling better after three or four days, great, stop and go, you know, go enjoy life. Should you write when you're happy? I don't. Why would I want to try to understand why I'm happy? I just like being happy. But the content is different, though. That's right. Um, I think, right? That the journaling, we're writing about our day or maybe talking about our feelings. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So this might get us into more of the detail of like, how would you prompt someone? Like what, what specifically might you say? So this is what I think has been, for me, the biggest breakthrough over the last 20 years. And that is, there is no one true way. I'm giving you a detailed roadmap of how to do this. And here's the detailed roadmap. Well, you know, go do some writing. See if it works for you. Okay, what should you write about? Any damn thing you want. If you're upset about something, write about that. And promise yourself you'll write at least, say, three or four days for at least five to 15 minutes each day. And again, if you don't find any benefit, no harm, no foul. It still was free. However, this is a technique that can be very beneficial. Now, initially, you know, I had people write about the most traumatic experience of their lives. I don't do that. It depends on who asked me to come in and talk to them. You know, if they've just been diagnosed with a disease, I'll say, you know, if you want, write about this diagnosis and explore your deep thoughts and feelings. But you might find some other topics are just as important. You know, having this disease also might have major implications for your marriage. It might have major implications for your career or whatever. In other words, Try to approach writing as a method to better understand some topic that is weighing upon you. Some people say, well, you should write with your non-dominant hand. Sure, try it out. Some people really find value in it, and some don't. I don't, but that's just me. Some people think that it's better to write a story or to write it in third person. Sure, if you want, try it. One of my first students who worked on this she absolutely believed that writing and then editing it later was one of the most helpful things for her. I believe her. I don't want to do it. But again, what I do with, with people who want to know more about this is to say, look, you're the boss. You experiment to see what works. And be a scientist about this. You know, if you're having trouble sleeping, Start to record your sleep. Maybe you've got a Fitbit that'll do it for you. And then look to see, are you sleeping better? Are you drinking less? Are you exercising more? Are you happier? But get some kind of objective measures and try to see, do you see any improvement from what you're doing? And if you're not, try writing in a different way. Try thinking about it differently. Maybe another topic might be relevant. In other words, 
don't trust me, don't trust anybody. You are your own therapist. And you can see this is a little Rogerian without the bother of a therapist. It's essentially saying, hey, look, I just work here. You're going to have to fix yourself. I will give you whatever tools I know about, but you need to figure it out on your own. There are a lot of things in life that you can and should compromise on, but mental health care is not one of them. Rather than thinking it's impossible to find a psychiatrist near you, or an available therapist that takes your insurance, or a primary care physician with openings, check out ZocDoc. ZocDoc is a free app and a website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of highly rated in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. So literally no compromises here because you've got more options than you would have ever imagined. You can find mental health providers who offer in-person appointments, virtual visits, or both. Whatever works for you. The insurance they take and their fees are transparent. They are listed right there. Most importantly, you can get real patient reviews to get a feel for the person before you commit to setting that first appointment. And here's the thing. The typical wait time you see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. That's it. Sometimes you can even score same-day appointments. Remember, it's not just therapists. You can find dentists and every other kind of physician that you can think of. So whatever that your ache and pain is that's bothering you and you know you need to handle, ZocDoc is your go-to. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash T-U. ZocDoc.com slash TU. It's free. It's easy. Go for it. Hey, every now and then we want to remind everybody that we want to thank our sponsors. Uh, Without them, we would not be able to continue to provide this free and totally accessible around the globe, all over the world. So we really do appreciate our sponsors. If you would prefer an ad-free feed, you can certainly get that at therapistuncensored.com slash join for as little as $5 a month. You can get an ad-free feed and be part of our neuro nerd community. But in the meantime, again, we really love and appreciate our sponsors because it gives us these incredible opportunities. And our very first sponsor ever that has continued to be our sponsor, I wanted to give you an update on them because we are continuing to use them. That is AG1. Ann and I still use it daily. It's part of our morning routine. And here's why. We want to make sure we get all the high-quality vitamins, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens we need every day, and we are ridiculously busy. So one scoop of AG1 in our smoothie guarantees basic nutritional cornerstones are met before we are even out the door. It is efficient, which we appreciate, and it tastes really good. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you will certainly appreciate how hard stress is on the body for us. And anything that we can do to reduce stress is very good. And we also, I'm sure, appreciate how important our gut biome is. And it's always really hard to figure out what to do to help your gut biome. <laughs> you know, you can definitely hear, you know, it affects mood, it affects thinking, it affects, you know, it's basically our second brain. But it's always hard to know kind of exactly what to do to have a good, healthy gut. Well, we turn to AG1 for that. Their parent company, Athletic Greens, keeps up with the latest science, and based on the latest data, they iterate their product to keep improving it. Plus, the ingredients are tested by a third party to ensure that what they say is what you get. 
So based on my experience taking AG1 and my snooping around <laughs> to make sure that they were a good company, I recommend you check them out at athleticgreens.com slash therapist uncensored. Be sure and use that link because for our listeners, they will give you a free year supply of vitamin B and free travel packs for you to be able to take this superpower on the road with you. That's athleticgreens.com slash therapist uncensored. One of the things that stands out about this kind of open-ended instead of like, here is the protocol, is some of the things you've written about is that writing takes you on a journey and you don't know where that journey is always going to end. If you have a protocol and you try to stick to that, this is the, the four things you're going to do. You're going to get caught in bringing yourself back into the shoulds and going from one place, I'm, I can't sleep and I'm writing about this one thing that keeps I'm ruminating about. So I'm going to write about it. And if I'm told write about that exact thing every time, I might contain myself, but what you've mentioned before is that you can start writing and it takes you into this and it reminds you of this and you get bored and all of a sudden you've gone a stream of consciousness and then it starts landing into something that your subconscious or your unconscious might be communicating to you, right? I mean, that it's just like, it's all, you're on a journey and now you're like, every time I write about this one thing that I'm ruminating about, I land over here and it's so informative. So I love what you're saying, open up the structure listen to yourself. That's part of the whole writing process. Isn't it? That's right. And it's been so funny ever since I, the, the first publications, you know, I get calls and emails all the time. And, you know, where do I get certified to do this? I want to be a, a writing therapist. And why haven't you patented this or trademarked it? And, you know. Capitalism be, is real. Capital, <laughs> no, you know, I'm a big believer in capitalism. But this is not the direction I want to spend my life. I want to discover things. But the important issue about this is everybody's approach has to suit them. And the beauty of it, because it's free, you have that freedom. It will not be costly. Well, I was thinking, though, too, that as far as this, how it works and why it works and the immune system. and But there was also some findings about language and language changing. Would you want to speak to that a little bit? I'll, t I'll talk a little bit. Uh, the, the big danger is I'll go and just start talking for the next two or three hours. <laughs> After I guess I'd published the first two or three papers on expressive writing, I became obsessed with the question, can you identify healthy writing by the way people are writing in the experimental condition? And you know, one of the issues was that we would do these studies, we might have 30 people who are writing about traumatic experience. Not all of them get healthier. And of course, our measures of health are really crude. But who benefits and who doesn't? So I initially got a group of counseling psychology people in a master's program to go through these and to evaluate these trauma essays. You know, how insightful are the people? To what degree are people using causal thinking? To what degree are they emotional? To what degree are this, that, and the other? It took them forever to do those ratings that people didn't agree at all. Several of them got depressed just reading all these depressing essays. This was not an effective strategy. So I thought, well, you know, I had taken a computer course in college. I had looked for computer programs and there weren't any. And I'd call some computer scientists around the country. And they all said it was a good idea, but they didn't know anybody who could do anything. So working with one of my graduate students at the time, Martha Francis, 
we put together a computer program called Linguistic Inquiry and Word Count, L-I-W-C. And I know it doesn't appear to be pronounced this way, but we call this L-I-W-C Luke. It's the Luke program. And the Luke program would allow us to go into any text and analyze it in terms of its emotional tone, is it positive, negative, is it high in anger, etc. Cognitive dimensions, are people using causal language, are they uh, using what we call self-reflection language, where they're using words like understand, realize, know, meaning, things like that, and many other dimensions of language. And once you start, you know, we initially had about 10 dimensions of language, and then we thought, well, we ought to throw in pronouns and prepositions and articles and, and other parts of speech. And what we discovered early on was that there were certain kind of fingerprints of healthy language. And if people used positive emotion words, they benefited more than if they didn't. So if they use words like love, care, etc. But it's kind of ironic. They're writing about horrible things. It's often they'll say, I'm not happy, nobody cares about me, etc. But ironically, that person is better off than someone who doesn't use those words. Because if someone says they're not happy, they're still thinking along that dimension of happiness. A person who says they're sad and miserable is probably more at risk. And what we found was that people who used a moderate number of negative emotion words benefited the most. If they used way too many, that was problematic. They were probably, you know, ruminative, maybe depressed. Or if they didn't use any at all, they were probably psychologically distancing and not much in touch with what they were writing about. But what mattered more than the emotion words were the use of cognitive words. And these cognitive words were both the causal words and insight words that were getting at the degree to which people were trying to figure things out. And by the same token, we're trying to put things together in some kind of story format. And we found that that accounted for much more action than emotion. Two things that we discovered. The more that people increased their use of these cognitive words, the more they benefited. And the more they changed their perspective from day to day. So going from I words to we words or they words and bouncing around from day to day, those people benefited more than people who did. In other words, there had to be some kind of growth in their writing. If they came in and wrote the same way every day, by and large, they did not benefit. I thought, well, heck, this is great. We will now do some experiments where we will tell people how to write. Initially, we told them to try to use these kind of words. That was a disaster but because they were trying to figure out which words to use. Later, we put it into the language that I just said, you know, try to put together, try to make this a story, change your perspective, etc. That has never worked. And I, part of it is what we're studying here is some kind of emergent process. That is, people who come in and they're obsessing about something and they're worried about it, if they, on the first day, they do some kind of dump, let me tell you what happened, blah, 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 where there's not much analysis. And the second day, there's more of this and more of that. That's just a natural emergent process. But if we tell them, okay, this first day, just do this, just do that, I think it blocks what naturally occurs. So 
I'm very reticent to tell people how to do it, but just very broadly, because you know, you've ridden for two days, your third day, you might think about wrapping things up some, but not being heavy-handed about it. Are you saying when you say cognitive words, are you saying words like that put some meaning to it, like because or cause or... And also words like understand, realize. You know, if you do analysis of therapists, they're often pushing for that. But what do you think about this? You know, how are you feeling? Do you feel like you understand those kinds of words? And I think one thing a therapist does is a therapist is really pushing people to think in certain ways that I think are actually beneficial that we see what's right, and especially this perspective changing. You know, if a, a client comes in and they sit and they're having trouble in their marriage and they say, you know, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling that, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling that. You're going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what about your spouse? What's your spouse's perspective? Or if another person comes in and says, my spouse, he does this, he does that, he does this, he does this, he does this. And you say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, how are you feeling? What's going on in your, in other words, your job is to force perspective change, which I think can be very beneficial. So those words like because or understanding is maybe activating different parts of our mind that are making more meaning of the story. If we just come and bitch and bitch and bitch in our writing, we're not maybe associating and making some kind of progress in the way that we're understanding the story. Is that I think that's a good way to think about it, that these words are reflecting kind of the cognitive work that's necessary in therapy. But actually, you could make the same argument for someone who's learning uh, particle physics. It's really hard to understand at first, but then you have to start, you know, I realize, I think, I wonder, those words, I think, would probably be a predictor of who learns that material better. It's interesting. I can't help but think again about therapy stuff and attachment and like who are the people that just write the same thing each time. And also, I've heard you say it's not what you say, it's how you say it, which is a very much, you know, in the attachment literature is that they're listening for style of speech. So do you know much about, is there an overlap about some of this attachment? You know, are we, are, is this another way into those categories? I used to know the attachment world pretty well. As you know, there's the attachment wars. I, I assume the attachment wars are still going on, which I've always, I've always been absolutely fascinated. <laughs> we just wrote a book. So uh, yeah, we, we're familiar. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't speak to this very well, but certainly different attachment styles are associated with different ways of thinking and organizing material. And I think that probably would mesh with some of the things that we're finding. But yet you're finding that you're still by doing the exercise. And I can imagine with the prompts of like going right for the heart of the watermelon and like do the hard thing that, in other words, you're getting these massively statistically significant effects and that's based against control groups. I do want to be very clear here. These are not massively powerful statistical effects. They are reliable. They are modest effects. To give you an example, the effects are of the same magnitude of many drugs. So for example, Prozac. Prozac versus a an active placebo is not that strong a drug. 
so we're not talking about kind of the effect of uh, some of the uh, psychedelics are having these. That's right. That's right. Big effects. Well, psychedelics have really big effects while they're high. But the question is, are those people who take psychedelics today, how are they in a month? Are they healthier in a month than people who don't? And that's where I think the effects are. They're going to be very modest. And, that, and the same is true with psychotherapy. You do psychotherapy and you go and you're, you look at your clients two months from now. Some of them will be quite different or somewhat different. Some won't. But the effects are, are modest. And Darian is the killer problem. I've, you know, it's been interesting. I've, this world has taken me in all these different directions. So, f- for example, one of my favorite, this is taking us in, in an irrelevant direction, but it's interesting. Uh, hey, it's Therapist Uncensored, so yeah, we can well, say anything yourself. yourself. Go for it. <laughs> so one of my favorite studies was a, a study that was done 30 years ago. It was a study of about 10,000 people, people who had had a heart attack. And what they did for half the people, they gave them a daily aspirin, and the other half the people, they gave them a placebo. And the study was so strong that they, showing that this aspirin use prevented a second heart attack that they stopped the study. Well, if you look at the effect size, it is really, really small. If they had done that study with 100 people, they would not have seen an effect. If they'd done it with 1,000 people, they probably would not have seen the effect. In other words, many of the things we do are truly reliable. They're statistically, you can take it to the bank, but the effects are not real strong. And I, that's the way I view expressive writing. If you do the study with 100 people, you will see an effect. If you do it with 20 people, you might not see the effect. And long-term effects of psychedelics, long-term effects of many things, you just don't see that many effects. It is helpful because definitely the way that it has been put out there, I think, is pretty exciting. And even at the beginning of the of the episode when we were talking about, and you know, and it does this and it does that, and it's really related to this, you know, and we were kind of laughing about it being an elixir. It is helpful to kind of have the moderation of. Yes, it can do those things, and that is true statistically, but having realistic expectations. And this is a problem that all of us in, certainly in science, I remember in laboratory studies, you know, you do an experiment and everything's controlled, and you you do something, and then you measure somebody immediately after you've done something. And there you can get really big effects. And then you think, woo, I'm so cool because... Now we know what causes uh, discrimination and, and racism in the culture. And then you go and try to do something in the culture to see if you can bring about changes, you know, in a large group of people over the next two or three months. And it's almost impossible because once you go outside the lab, all this stuff is impinging on people. And that's why when I can do expressive writing stuff, with 50 people or whatever and I am finding that people on average are going to the doctor less I didn't appreciate how powerful that was and in fact that first the first studies I did I did all did at SMU 
SMU, all the students live on campus, and right there in the middle of all the dorms is the Student Health Center. Turns out if you're close to a student health center, you go to the student health center at much higher rates than if you have to walk, you know, half a mile. When I moved to the University of Texas, I did my first expressive writing study, and students hardly ever went to the student health center. Had I done that first study at the University of Texas, it wouldn't have come out because people didn't go. That's just in talking about bringing back all my PhD studies and hammering about a fact. And I remember in writing a dissertation that if you got any of it a fact, a point one, it's like you were so excited. But you're but you're pointing out something that's really important. It isn't because it has a modest effect that it isn't incredibly powerful. It is very easy to miss an effect. We don't want to overestimate it, make it an elixir. But like you're saying, and what I love about your studies is that you did find an effect and you knew it had meaning. It wasn't you were doing this research study to find that effect. It was like oh, wow. And then you continue to explore it, with, which is such authentic research. And you kept going with, wow, now let's look further rather than having the presumption of what you wanted to see and you're researching it. So that's a really powerful way to do research. And it, we are still saying that the effect is powerful. Like if you can look and see a difference in the blood draws many weeks later, you're hitting on something huge, but there's all sorts of other factors that are going to influence and that are going to intrude on an outcome variable. So even finding a modest effect is actually a really big deal in research. Yeah. And it comes back to, look, it's free. This is not a big investment. And I tell everybody this, try it. It may work. And I'm constantly amazed talking to members of my family. And of course, when I'm having problems, they'll say, you know, Dad, you should write about this. And it just annoys <laughs> the hell out of me. But they're right. That's great. Well, and before we go, it, could you give us any just thumbnail on the research on our political leaders and language? And you know, that's another area of uh, interest of yours. This computer program, Luke, has created a life of its own. And there's a kind of an interesting irony. So people in the clinical world know my expressive writing, but I have even more citations from people who do work in, in business, in computer science, in all these other areas who are interested in the language work that I stumbled on. And, and I became interested in, by analyzing the language of peoples, can you understand them better? Can you get a sense of, you know, are they depression prone? Are they neurotic? Are they analytic? Are they smart? Are they lazy thinkers? Are they ruminating? All of these different dimensions. So I work with all types of people, everything from law enforcement to, I was just involved in a very interesting case of Kathleen Folbig, a woman in Australia who had four children and all of these children died between age of seven months and maybe a year and a half. And after the last one died, uh, and, and these were sequential, she was arrested and accused of murder. And she had kept a diary the whole time. She was in prison for 20 years. And over the years, people in, in Australia were saying, a large increasing number of people were saying, this was a miscarriage of justice. And there was some evidence that some genetic possibilities that they could account for. Her husband, interestingly, refused to have his blood measured. 
And I was asked to analyze her diaries in the years when all this was going on. And I went through and I approach all my projects, which is, I don't know if she's guilty or not. No, honestly, I don't care. I'm, I'm just going to go through and analyze. And I've done enough work to know if someone is going to commit a murder or going to commit, you know, if there's any kind of premeditation, I'm pretty good at seeing if there are changes in language. I can also see if somebody is highly unstable. There are all sorts of things. And there was zero evidence for any of this. And so I wrote a report for the, for the court. So my work together with uh, some of the other people as well, she was exonerated actually just uh, um, a couple of months ago. And so after 20 years in prison, she's now been exonerated for that. And I feel really proud of that. You ask about politicians. What can you tell about politicians? Well, you were, look, you were saying that you could tell when someone's lying. So. <laughs> no. yeah, yeah. Are there any just kind of takeaways uh, as we lead into this election year? You know, of course, this looks like it's going to be a rematch. We already know Trump. We already know Biden. And their language gives them away. <laughs> you know, I could give you, I could show you their language and you say, yep. In fact, we just published an article looking at the leaders of United States, Great Britain, Angela Merkel in Germany, and the groups that run Switzerland, and how they all talked about COVID in their press conferences. And it was just fascinating just reading them, but also you just look at the language. So Trump, of course, was in a different world than all the rest. He speaks in these broad pronouncements using positive emotion words. Everything's great. We're doing a wonderful job. Everything is great. There's nothing to worry about. Go back to work. It's all beautiful. But he's not an analytic thinker. An analytic thinker is somebody who is thinking in a formal, logical way. Most leaders think in a somewhat analytical way. Trump has been the least analytical president that the United States has ever had. He's a braggart. I was going to say he's a storyteller. Reagan was a storyteller. Trump is not very good at stories either. His language is, by and large, fairly disorganized, but very social and very, very simple language. Biden is actually quite social. He's also a storyteller, but he's much higher in, in analytic than Keith. And it's very interesting, somebody like Obama. Obama was actually quite a storyteller as well. He was not particularly high in analytic thinking. He could be, but not very much. And in fact, we've been tracking the language of U.S. presidents going back to George Washington. And one of our interests is this analytic thinking. We find analytic thinking is generally associated with you know, being logical, smart, etc. And what you see is starting in you know the... 1800s, the analytic thinking was pretty high. And then it came to about uh, Teddy Roosevelt and then Wilson in the end of World War I. And all of a sudden, the analytic thinking of presidents just started dropping and dropping and dropping, with uh, Trump being the lowest and the second lowest actually was probably Obama, which is kind of weird. And at the same time, we can also measure clout, the degree to which somebody speaks with authority. And what you see in the 1800s, clout was kind of modest. And then after World War I, clout started going up, and it's been going up and up and up. And here we have Trump, the highest. Obama was quite high as well. 
And what this is, is I think it's mass media that our leaders have gotten the message that we have to speak as though the audience is stupid, but speak with absolute certainty. That's what's been happening here. We're also seeing this to some degree in the UK and in Canada and Australia as well. And I think it's part of this media awareness that that is what makes for a good a good leader. Speak with certainty, speak with confidence. And we know speaking with confidence is a scary thing because most people who speak with confidence are people that we're more likely to trust and we objectively should trust them far less. That was so fascinating. And just to clarify, when you're saying low analytical and high confidence, you're analyzing their language, not not their their personal brilliance or whether they're smart. You're analyzing how they promote themselves in their speeches. And that and, and I what I recall about that article is some of the summary is that you now are more likely to get elected if you use low analytical speech and high confidence. So the more confidence you express in the simplest terms, and we were just talking and writing about that, that gives our body who can be very highly activated with all the stimulation we have around us. You have a high confidence, simple words. We feel our body feels calmer. We feel more secure in a way. We're given a false sense of security. And from your article, you were saying that those are the ones you can predict just by their speaking, that they're going to be much more likely to get elected. And I thought that was really fascinating. That's right. You know, it's so interesting. Yes, it reflects the leaders, but really it reflects us, the people. Yes. We're suckers. We like Cheetos. We like Cheetos for our food, and we like Cheetos for our leaders. <laughs> I love Cheetos. <laughs> we do. We do. You know, we do. They're simple. They're sweet. They're crunchy. And that's that's how we we are choosing our leaders. That's really interesting. Being able to look at language in such detail, you're not you're not expressing political judgment in this. You literally are looking at their language and the predictions of that. So it's something for us all to be mindful of, isn't it? Do we really, really want to be eating Cheetos for the rest of our lives? <laughs> That's right. And you look in the past and a lot of the presidents in the past have been really boring, but they've been uh, safe. Well, it's good to be getting kind of the message out about this idea of encouraging complexity and like kind of staying in difficult gray areas being uncertain and, and widening our capacity to kind of hang in with uncertainty or as people shift their thinking, seeing that as a positive thing, not waffling. I should also point out these concerns are something that I see in education. I see it in therapy. I see this with MDs, that the MD who's the most certain often is viewed as most effective, even though they might be screamingly incompetent and when the patients have no knowledge of the topic you're going to believe that physician who says you have to do this or the therapist who says you have to do this or the teacher who says you have to do this people are suckers for we're suckers for it because our body feels insecure and we aren't used to we don't like that sense of insecurity right we want to feel secure and so I love the message that we're sending is like actually like the, the, the words of cognition that you were mentioning, they're questionings words. Do I understand this? What do I think about this? It takes us out of a certain 
this person is a jerk and is mistreating me to, okay, but wait, what really happened? What, you know, and so now I'm going into my own sense of uncertainty, exploring it, developing more of a, a way of thinking that tolerates uncertainty, which is such a deep sign of security in a way. Yeah. And we, we wrapped right back around to our book, right? It's called uh, Secure Relating, Holding Your Own in an Insecure World. That was not on purpose that we landed here at all, but it's exactly some of the stuff that we talk about around growing our capacity to tolerate this difference and to look at these bigger systems that create insecurity that then cause us to, you know, be more tribal and divide. And go for simple answers. Yeah, exactly. This well, was good. so fun. Yeah, absolutely. Now, if people are interested, where might they reach you? How might they get a hold of you or, or find papers about you? They should go to my website. Which is? Oh, uh, you know, I don't know. Just <laughs> <laughs> Look your name up. <laughs> this is Jane Pinnaker. Yeah, yeah. Go to Google. Okay, just a second. It'll be in our way. We'll have it in our uh, show okay. notes. Okay. So don't worry. And, and we'll I'll also, go, we'll post I, your papers. And stuff that's too. right. I've got a couple of books that feel free to buy, but also uh, a lot of papers that you can just download. That's great. Um, and you want to uh, say the books? What are, what are the ones so that you One read? of them is The Secret Life of Pronouns, which talks a lot about the nature of language, and then opening it up by writing it down. Opening it up by writing it down. Okay, that's great. Well, we're going to link all of this. And there was a, I think the article, the 2016 article, I think, where that you were reflecting on some of these other, some of the studies. We got a copy of that. I think it was behind the paywall, but uh, is that something that we can put in the- Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Again, go to my website and you will see the, uh, one of the links is publications. Go there and it's probably there and you can tie in that URL because anybody can get it. Okay, that's wonderful. All right, well, thank you very much. We appreciate the uh, deep dive and uh, really appreciate your work. You bet. I well, I enjoyed it. You guys do it are doing a great job. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, and we'll see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. 